button that up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I'm stretching. G'day, everybody. Uh, this episode of the ISS podcast proudly supporting Swiss 8, the veteran-led mental health charity. Go check out their free holistic health app uh, in app stores now. Guys, uh, this next guest coming on, uh, this has been a long time in the making on, on our behalf. Um, our next guest is Shane Healy. Now, his career, he has had an absolute phenomenal career, and he has done things that most people in the Army could only dream of doing, um, and it has been a phenomenal career. Uh, mate, can you – welcome to the show, first off. Good night, good night. And, uh, mate, can you tell us – I mean, up from 1995 to 2004 – uh, take us through your, your sort of career because I know you've spent some time uh, with the Navy as well and, and rub shoulders with DeGelder and um, you take us through that, bro. Yeah, so um, uh, I was uh, – I wanted to join the Army since I was, I don't know, was two or three or whatever. Did Army Cadets, you know, one Cadet of the Year in 91 and got to meet the Duke of Ember and, um, but also was playing a rep junior at footy and stuff. Um and then at 19, 90, 1995, quit footy and joined the Army. Wound up at uh, Kapuka in uh, August, July, August, uh, 95, back in when it was, uh, you know, you had regimental police, you had the full bastardisation, you know. It was, uh, it was, but it was probably the best time of my 20-year career, so I'm not going to complain about it at all. And I'm still better mates with those blokes than I am with most other guys, so... Um, it was it was awesome, um, but you didn't join with the job. You got given a job, um, but as things happen, and, and it's pretty much the tale of my life. One of my section commanders uh, was a couple of years ahead of me at high school. One of the other section commanders was the rugby captain at Kapuka, and our platoon sergeant was the coach. And before East Timor, uh, rugby was the centre of gravity for the army. And literally, like, they would send Blackhawks to bases to pick guys up for a game of rugby. Um, and um, as it was, you know, um, because we joined without a job, you did a lot of your site testing in the first couple of weeks. And I, or it was about, I don't know, week two, we are in a room doing some site tests and whatever, and the platoon sergeant comes up and he gets on there to speak to recruit Healy. And I'm like, oh, shit, what have I done? And he's like, oh, I hear you play rugby. And I went, because I played rec rugby at, at high school and, uh, you know, and played some other rec footy and stuff. And I said, oh, yep. He goes, oh, would you play rugby for the Army? And I'm like, oh, I guess so. All right. Training's at 4.30 down on the Oval. Oh, okay. Now, remember, they lock all your gear away. So I've turned up in my little friggin' Army shorts, my white shirt with my name across the front. And back then, there was... All the officers played. So you had third, seconds, and first. Your seconds were all of your, you know, your um, young lieutenants and that, that thought they were wallabies. And then the twos were a lot of your senior NCOs who were harder. And then your first, some of those guys could really play. Like my section commander, Jim Petrie, was a gun. And some of the other guys were in the Azuru side. So and I'm standing there going, what am I doing here? And everyone's looking at me going, what's that recruit doing here? Anyway, so... Uh, long story short, I ended up going infantry, um, and at that stage, um, and it kind of ties in with the old mate that had the recon guy the other day, um, which was, it was awesome and very topical 
watching, talking about the alcohol and the recon course. Because uh, all I did at Singo too was play rugby, and my rugby coach was Jethro Hanna. So I'm obviously media the reaction you've heard of Jethro before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I so haven't. I him. haven't. So feel free to go go into it because I haven't heard of him. So Jethro was one of uh, Cosgrove scouts in Vietnam, and he ran recon training and sniper school at Singo. For it was a chain smoker. Old school. A lot of the instructors there were Vietnam vets. So when you did your infantry training in 95, water discipline was when you drink out of your water bottle, everyone gets a sip because there's no half water bottles through the bush. You know, no walking between pits, on your guts, kind of, you know, the buffet was 5Ks. And uh, so because I, I pretty much got posted on a, um, as a sheriff's deputy just to play footy, and the Singleton Army side played in the Newcastle Saturday comp. Um, so, you know, you'd be uh, helping an independent rifle company out, playing enemy, and then you'd turn up, face paint, train, and, uh, you know, we had guys like Shane Nidri and Tommy Navasalo and, you know, gun rugby players because the three army rugby players things were Kapuka, Singo, and um, and Nogra. I mean, they, all the army rugby blokes only played for West and the Brisbane comp. And, uh, yeah, so, and then I, I um, busted my back pretty well and uh, tore a lot of muscles and, and had trouble, and still to this day, have trouble striding out. Um, and there was no real x-rays or um, understanding of what the injury was. And so one of the things I had to do was I had to walk 10Ks in full combat order, dig a stage one, do that three days in a row to uh, remain fit, just to stay in, uh, in the infantry. Um, now... I still remember the doctor's name, and I won't say it, but he had just actually down, went to downgrade Jethro, and it was hell. Because Jethro had about 30 seconds until he, he retired as a legend. And um, the other thing he'd just done, we just had the farewell. There's a lot of books by a guy named Gary McKay. He writes about Vietnam in good company, um, operating with your ears. Uh, I think it's ears open. And, and you know, he was a commandant of the inf- infantry centre at the time, and we had his farewell, and... Anyway, so because this doctor, who was a civvy, had kind of made some political incorrect decisions or so, he just dug in across the board, and no matter what you did. Um, so um, I um, changed roles to a reserve capacity in Sydney for a while, uh, then went out to Alice Springs. Uh, oh, lovely part of the world. <laughs> It would have been in 95. That's 25 years ago. Well, this, is, this was early 97. Uh, and Fuck, they would have had uh, six shooters still, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so a lot of what happened was I, I was sitting in my room and, you know, obviously there's nothing going on. And there was a – I've still got the magazine, to be honest, too. The cover of um, the Army Mag was about North Force and how they patrolled with live ammo because they're after uh, poachers, illegal alcohol drops and – um, back then, Sovereign Borders was boatloads of Indonesian dudes washing up on shore. So you literally <laughs> patrol with like, and we're like, that sounds like a real job. Let's try to get out there. Uh, anyway, so uh, did that for a little while and then for some uh, family stuff, came back to Sydney and was at Mossman for a little while. Uh, and then one of my uncles, who was a bit of an idol of mine, um, he was a, a woe CD and spent a lot of time in Perth establishing the Maritime CT in the late 70s, early 80s. And he just goes, you're a dickhead. Like, the only restriction I had was I couldn't carry a pack 
over 25 kilos um, repetitively. That's literally so. He goes, divers don't carry packs. So I um, yeah went into the navy as a CD literally, and then I was getting a medical, and I realised that for some reason that had been removed from a med docs. So I left, um, checked, I got another appointment, went in with another doctor. So is that right? Am I fit for everything? They said, yep. Yeah. Bang, straight up, service transfer back to the army. And I was going to be a loading. Um, and I, so I did all, the, um, did all the testing to do my loadies course and then service transferred across as an instructor in the army dive wing in 03, which was awesome. One of the best jobs I've had in the military for sure. Uh, it's hard physically. It's one of the most, um, you know, they cram about because you can't. A lot of the uh, guys that do the course come from Darwin and Townsville, so they want it. You've got you can only dive in the summer months because if you get unfit to dive with a cold or something for two days, you don't get enough time underwater. So um, they really condense. Watch is essentially a three month course into about six or seven weeks. Up at five. Dive uh, five days a week until you know five at night. Tuesday and Thursday, you dive until midnight. PT after, PT during. Um, it was just awesome. Um, and then because that's and so for everybody that um, um, that is not in the army or, or gets the acronyms, that's a clearance diver, right? So no, no, no. These guys are. So huh? that is yes. Yeah, so I was in the um, uh, Navy clearance diver first, but then service transfer. It's called the Army Working Diver. So it's, it's oh, right. engineer CER heavy, you know, underwater construction, yep. uh, uh, clearance of dams and bridges, and they do underwater demolition now and stuff. So, um, you know, you're diving in zero vis or in dirty water and creeks and stuff. Um, you know, you, you're doing, we did, um, I did a couple of real jobs there, was uh, Lark got submerged up at Wide Bay. So going up there and using the suckers to get a lot of the sand away and some airbags to float that again. Um, two commando did a parachute jump in a manly once and lost some weapons in the water. So we had to go around and look for a minimi and some stuff there. Who was that? Say, say that unit again. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so um, so it was pretty good. Uh, but yeah, so it's army work diver. Uh, it's it's we're a clearance diving course. You know, you, you come in, you do ship divers for um, three weeks, and um, guys from the guys and girls from the fleet can do that. You know, each ship's got a ship's diving detachment. So then, but you've got to do that before you do the cruise diver acceptance test, which goes for about 10, 11 days. Um, and then, which is all, you know, around pit water and, and, and harbour, canoeing, swimming, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. But then your, your CD course goes for about nine months, uh, where this is literally all, a lot of that condensed into about six weeks. Um, and I'm not sure what it's like now, but back then it, it was just no joke, you know, you yeah, our instructor at the time had a deck of cards, and you know if they'd muck, they'd, they'd do something wrong, you'd pick a card. It might have five hundred flutter kicks, five hundred push-ups. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mossman, but it's all up hills. So it's you know it's it was one run called three hills repeat, and you're up and down a Wava Street. And uh, the guy that I worked with, I call him Danny because he's in SoCom now. One of the fittest men I've ever worked with. You know, when you do a two point four, and everyone would go. He'd start last, and he'd come back first and go, well, you know, what's your issue? And So, anyway, that was really good. Um, and then while I was waiting for my Lotus course, uh, I got offered a job to go and do three months in Iraq. Which takes us into, uh, oh, so, so 
So is this taking us, is this into your, you're getting out and doing your private security gigs or yeah. is this, uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, as if doing that was, was not interesting enough, uh, you decided, Hey, fuck it. Let's go and do some private security, security work in Iraq. Yeah. So it was a combination of a couple of things. Obviously I was in when 9-11 happened. I'll never forget that, you know, um, everyone started messaging each other and, and cause it sounds weird, but it was also a new thing to be able to instant message someone. So it wasn't like everyone just does it now. It was a little bit weird and and then fucking everyone just went to work and the boss just come out and goes, oh, well, you're all here. Well, we're, America's just been attacked and we're at war, essentially. And, okay, right, let's go. So obviously, you know, Perth deployed and uh, to Afghanistan and Iraq with, with uh, uh, SOTG and came back. And that was pretty much it, if you remember. You know, Solomon's not much was going on. Team Earl was, uh, had transitioned for the first time to police operations, and I'm like, fuck, I missed the boat. And then guys that I was in the reserves with up at Mossman, they'd um, already done a job in Vanuatu doing some security work for this company. And then there was an opportunity to go to Iraq and train uh, the newly established Iraqi commandos. And initially it was three months, and I'm like, yep, yeah, I can you know, leave without pay, do that, come back and do the ladies thing, and I didn't leave for four years. So, because um, this is where it's interesting. Um, so in the army, you always feel safe, I suppose, if you have a little safe space because you've got extraction methods, you've got fire support, you've got mates, you've got a lot of things. And for somebody, I've had, we've got mates that do private security, but no one who, I've never done it. Is Was there, is there more stress and more pressure Knowing, I mean, I don't, what were the what were the support things in place to get you guys out? Because because uh, generally it's you're fucking done, right? You- so I was one of the first Australians over there. We had nothing, and I mean nothing. We drove. I tell people that have done it what we did in that first August September, and no one believes us, right? If I and if, if if I was by myself, they still wouldn't believe me. But I go, you know, talk to old mate. He he was, and I'll show him photos like. We drove from, we lived in the red zone, not in the green zone in Baghdad. Um, and we drove in a one vehicle beat up, soft skinned vehicle down essentially along the Iranian border into a place called Anyumania. Um, we were the only non Iraqis in the area. Um, and uh, it's 35 kilometers from Iran. Um, our court, was pretty passive at that stage, but it was one of the first places to have a big uprising. Um, and when we got there, so originally the contract started as a policing contract, um, and then it got upscaled to being uh, a special operations uh, contract where the guys we were training we could go into Fallujah. And so we got there, and there were some of these old uh, American police officers on a dine call contract that were just good old sheriffs, you know, overweight dudes and. <laughs> Had never never fired a long gun in their life, and they were walking around like like zombies. What the fuck are we yeah, doing? Yeah, they're like fucking zombies, right? And there was me. Uh, there was already a couple Aussies there, um, and but there was we were like the military guys that turned up. Uh, there was um, an ex sergeant, recon sergeant from eight nine RR, a recon dude from two RR, um, and uh, another dude who ran up going to become a sniper at two commando who had already been in Armoured, I think, and we were the Army dudes. And um, 
anyway, we're looking around and they're going, look, it's hell here. They're shooting all nights and it's, you know, the enemy's everywhere and we've got to do pickets and they were just zombies. And we're like, what do you mean they're shooting every night? Or over there, every night, you know, there's gunshots and so you can't sleep and you've got to be ready to go and you've got to sleep in your shit. And we're like, oh, well, well, who is it? What's going on? Are the rounds hit the building? And they go, nah, nah. And so we go, well, let's do an OP. And they go, what does that mean? And they go, well, tonight we'll go and sit over there and actually see what's going on. What do you mean? Well, we'll sit over there in those bushes or something and we'll cam up and we'll see who's doing the shooting and where they're coming from. That's suicide. No, no, that's what we do. We go and sit and see what's going on. Anyway, these American coppers couldn't believe it, so we went and did it, and we worked out that the perimeter guard towers were actually shooting at each other. <laughs> so we, we come, after about, I don't know, whatever it was, we just go, this is whatever, we walk in, and um, so we go down to the American contractors who are running it, and I go, do you do, like, ammo checks and stuff? And they're like, what for? You know, your guard force. Nah. Where do you get your guard, guard force from? Well, half a Kurdish and half a loaf of Shia. Okay. Oh, right. <laughs> and I didn't know much about the Middle East then. And he goes, yeah, they hate each other. And I go, you know, they're shooting at each other. He goes, oh, yeah, we lose guards all the time. <laughs> anyway, so when I go back, grabbed all the guys, said, look, get all your gear off, go to bed. What do you mean? There's no enemy out there. It's the local guard force, blah, blah, blah. So um, we kind of, and I can send some photos of it, we had an old Jeep Cherokee B4, we had uh, go bags in it, we had a ton of ammo, and that was our Alamo. We, we actually moved away from the main building, we had our own little building, uh, and there was, yeah, four, four or five ex-soldiers, and we had our own actions on, um, and that was it. There was no, if, if we had got uh, hit, that was us. It was, and this was just after the, um, the guys got hit in Fallujah, and uh, it was definitely our most dangerous course of action. At this stage, there were no US um, soldiers on the base. That started to come in later. So it was just us. And we would have been 90k south of Baghdad. So me, so me, I mean, me and Mex have been talking about this a lot over the last um, week and a half with the Afghan stuff going on, trying to break down and understand exactly why people join the military. Why, why, what was their internal moral motivation to go to Afghan in the first place? And um, it, it's easy to use throwaway lines like I'm giving myself something bigger. It, it was my purpose in life. And that, that, that works when you are justifying why you joined a national military to go over and, and do what's right for the Australian people. I mean, I, I personally, and this is what me and Max have discussed, is I think a lot of us are still, we've got the same motivation that people had in World War One and Two. It was exciting. It was adventurous. It was a test of manhood. It was a challenge that I wanted to see if I was up to it, right? And that's, I believe, Truly, when I look in the mirror, that was probably what motivated me to join the military in the first place. Question, I'm getting to it. Um, when you go from someone who's been in the military, who's like, oh, yeah, yes, they, there is all of these socially acceptable reasons why I would join a nation's military to go and fight overseas. Oh, hang on. Sorry, my headphones are just blowing up. Still good. Um, and what motivates you? Well, what was your driving force to become a private security contractor in the earliest stages of the Middle East conflict um, with no support? What, what motivates you to do that outside are of money? You guys, are you guys familiar with um, uh, sheep, sheep, dog and wolves, the, that analogy? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm a sheep dog. Nice. I'm not, a, I'm not a wolf and I'm not a sheep. And 
I guess I can be all idealistic and say I wanted to help and all that, but initially I wanted to get my gun on. Uh, and I wanted to test myself. You know, I'd done five, six, seven years of training, and, and it's like, you know, a sportsman. You, you know, you want to play a game. And, and since I was five or six, I wanted to be a soldier in a war. And I just literally wanted to know, A, you know, I've done a lot of uh, boxing, martial arts and, and stuff too, and I like, I've got to test myself. Am I a fake or am I the real deal? And, you know, you've done a million sections of tax with blanks. Do you still get up and take a knee and well-aimed shots on a two-way range? And so there was a bit of that going on. Uh, I, I genuinely believed in what I was doing once I got there. You know, I left as a um, uh, selfishly just wanting to get my gun on. Within about two days, I fell in love with the Middle East and the, the culture and the history and the people. Um, you know, my interpreter that I got on day three, we're still mates. You know, I helped him get out of Iraq. I watched his kids grow up. I, I helped that. So um, my motivation definitely changed over there. But I guess the easiest way to break it down is, you know, I'm a sheepdog. Yeah, and for... Go, mate. I was going to say, I love it. That, that's an honest answer that not many people are willing to, to put forward because that is 100% correct. I, I can relate to that too, being the sports analogy, going, I trained my entire life to play footy. Now I'm sitting on the sideline. Like You do get in, – in the Western world at the moment, it's not socially acceptable to say, I look forward to going to war, whereas it's kind of in our DNA. We haven't evolved away from needing to be in conflict all the time. And there's there's no rite of passage for young blokes anymore. And I think while there's a war, like a, when, when you understand that the majority of the world is, especially the third world, is killing each other, they're, they're in conflict all day, every day. We're lucky to be insulated from that. But I think that if you understand that that's actually going on, there is a craving for most young men to go, I want to fucking get amongst it. Um, so, yeah, 100%. But it, 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 in, and I've, I'm doing a lot of research in that space at the moment because there's also a, a lot of um, scientific evidence that there's a warrior gene. Right. And I'm really trying to investigate that too. Um, but, yeah, so – and what makes, um, you know, someone to be a soldier and, uh, you know, a sheepdog can be a first responder, a firefighter, an ambulance officer. You know, you're, you're putting yourself between the sheep and the wolf. But what's that next thing that you're prepared to give your life up for someone else or, you know, you're – and a lot of it is, and, you know, you would have seen it in a battalion, there's just guys that aren't cut out for the job. doesn't mean they're, they're weak or, or whatever, but, you know, for whatever reason, there's a bit of self-preservation in there or, you know, I've been blown up and shot and whatever and whatever, you know. So I think there's a bit of selfishness about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, for sure, it's it's something that, it's a calling. You can't force someone to do it. Mm. And, and I think, you know, I've got a lot of experience in when I was in Iraq. So I literally was on a U.S. convoy uh, in November 04 and we got ambushed and I was out the window fucking getting it on and came back and, and the, um, one of the commanders in the convoy, this American guy, goes, fucking, you know, you don't mind getting it on. Do you want a job? And I'm like, doing what? He goes, we're doing that. And I, I fucking know. So I wound up on a U.S. Um, contract um, with a government agency doing some other stuff, literally because I enjoyed getting my gun on. 
Yeah, I think honestly, I don't think there's. We know that um, <clears throat> teenage males uh, wired in to be more risk averse. That's why they're always killing themselves in fucking car accidents, doing dumb shit, jumping off building, like in the water. Like they, they are, we are programmed to go and do dumb shit, um, testosterone and all these things. And like you said, I really like the point because it really resonated with me, mate. When you get there and you immerse yourself. So I think governments do have a lot of responsibility in when we go to war. We know that war is an arm of politics. It is one of the tools that, you know, they use. We are a tool of politics, not a problem. So it's, it's our government's job to make sure we're going there for the right reasons. When the boys and the girls go and they go for their own reasons, once they get there, and like you said, you saw Iraqis and you're like, fuck, these guys are actually pretty cool guys, right? You went, we went over to Afghan and we trained with the A&A and we're like, oh, these guys want to go and get in gunfights. Like they're fucking still warriors. They're not getting paid and some of them are unmotivated. Fine. But. You try and get an Australian nine-year-old kid out paying him 40 bucks an hour to go and get him. Do you know what I mean? So, well, yeah, right that really kid. resonates, mate. It's the right kid, and that's the difference too. Like, um, And that's what's been lost right now too when they talk about the collapse of the Afghan army. And I've got a history background. I look at everything, whether it be training, diet, uh, warrior, soldiering, war, anything through the lens of history. Go back to the lizard brain. Why did we leave the cave? Why did we go over the mountain? What made us? And that's that risky behaviour. Fuck, let's, what's over? Let's have a look. And that's one side of it. The next side is, what do we do when we run into the saber-toothed tiger? Fight or flight? Who stands there and has a crack? And who fucking runs? So there's, there's, they both interconnect, but they're a bit separate too, with that risky behaviour, if that makes sense. A mm. um, bit of self-preservation. And that's where the selfishness and selflessness comes in. The young dude who will do the risky stuff but he's selfish will self-preservation will kick in. Fuck, I'm not popping my hand up over that. That guy's shooting at me. And then there's a selfless dude who will pop his head up and return fire because, you know, he's trying to get his mates out of there or, you know, uh, an IED's gone off and he's got to expose himself to help a mate who's been wounded. That's the difference. In what I've seen, what I've learned and, and done, that's the difference to me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what's his name? Grossman sums it all up in Killology. It's the, it's you know, it's it needs another update, I think. But it, he that that was his job. You know, if, if you look, if you read the book and you're familiar with it, Battle of Gettysburg, they were picking rifles up that had been reloaded ten times, but guys couldn't take a sight picture, and that was his job. And one of the first things he realised is he had to dehumanise the targets. So then all of a sudden you got your silhouette targets come in, mm-hmm. centre of scene mass, and anyway, it's unnatural for. Sheep to kill another sheep. Yeah, I think it's. I think that genetic memory stuff. This is massive. We know, but like I think we spoke about this once or twice on the podcast. But deep diving this would have been great. And 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 I'll be happy to get you on when once you break the uh, the warrior gene research, mate. Get you on and, and break it down. Well, but I've, the, the, I've, I'll, I'll say balls down. I've been researching this to try to. To be honest, you know, I was sick for a little while, and and I mean, we'll get into it later, but. It was to understand me. Why, why did I uh, just make certain decisions and why do I thrive in that? And like, you know, my uh, psychologist goes, mate, I could sit you back in a bad day tomorrow and you'd be better than you are now. Mm. So, you know, I learned to be comfortable in the chaos or that I was comfortable in the chaos. You know, I got shot for the first time on the 23rd of December 2004. 
and 2 a.m. coming up in a South Baghdad in a you know a double ambush. I went to work the next day. Well, there's guys that didn't, mate. So there's guys. We had, we had guys from our trip that that you know people decided, ah, oh, this isn't for me, yeah. man. When people when when you know uh, Benny got killed from our trip, there were a couple of boys that were like, nah, this is a bit real. This isn't for me, and that's fine. And I think it's got to be a genetic. It's got to be this genetic predisposition that goes on. How birds can find water, how birds and and how animals know how to do things that have never been taught that don't know. You know what it is, and, and in my my last role in army, it was part of my job when I do pre-deployment briefings and that we don't give soldiers the so what. You go in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, you're going to train the ANA, but why? Who are they? Why are we doing it? What are we trying to achieve? You know, they talk about the, the uh, strategic corporal. Well, what about the strategic digger? In, in a counterinsurgency environment, when your whole purpose is to separate the insurgency from the population, you've got to explain to the soldiers who the population are and why. And that's where we failed our soldiers in Afghanistan. But, and I'm writing about it now, our politicians didn't even know. You know, the Prime Minister and Chief of Army who sent us to Afghanistan in 2006 didn't even know that Mullah Omar and Mullah Barada came from a Ruzgan. Like, they thought that we'd been given this backward patch of dirt. It was the centre of gravity and key terrain for both the Aruzs, for the insurgents or the Taliban and the government. Hamid Karzai got rescued from TK Airfield in 2001. And if you watch, there's that documentary, Afghanistan, an Australian story, Peter Leahy and John Howden and all that are on there going, well, we had no idea. We just thought it was a backward little town the Americans gave us. Like, Muller Omar's family lived in the Tangy Valley the whole time we were there. That's why the Battle of Derrick happened. The guys were starting to patrol near his compound and the Taliban defended it. Get fucked. No, no, no. We did, <laughs> SOTG, we did two clearances of it. And we just said, because I, I knew where it was and had met with some of his family, we just set a blocking force up in one location and pushed up the valley because we knew why they were there and where they were going to be and, you know, had some fun. So that, so, <laughs> Rado, this is a good segue into, so you you got, you, 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 oh, no, actually it's not, mate. So Fallujah, you went, yeah. while you were private security. Yeah. Training the uh, um, Iraqi special Iraqi special police, yeah. uh, Fallujah too. Yeah. Were you? I mean, and your involvement in that was that with the forward line of troops, or were you? What was your involvement in Fallujah too? Um, yep, yeah, bit of everything. So uh, the guys we trained um, were supposed to be in it. Um, our contracting company. Uh, was located with the Iraqis in their camp, Fallujah, so next to the Marine base. Um, so we were there. Um, we had some key points uh, to take, which was mythical. Uh, and it was a supporting role, but also um, it was one of those ones, the Iraqis, like you, you, know, you would have seen in Afghanistan, the Afghans are going to do a court and search in this area. But in reality, they're going to sit to the side and someone else is going to do it. We were somewhere in the middle. Um, so was this the Fallujah, which was the one where they let the Yanks kind of did a bit of a letter drop and said, hey. This is, that was the second one. That was the second one. So we're coming. Is, Petraeus was the commander for the conventional forces first when they did the first battle. And it was an uneasy um, 
an uneasy truce, we'll call it. Then the, um, well, I guess what we'll call our Kaiden in Iraq really kicked off in, that's the Sunni Heartland, Ramadi, Fallujah. Then you had the Blackwater contractor um, issue with Scotty and that got killed. Now, between them, the Marines were getting to rip, were getting ready to rip out with the conventional forces, and that was Mathis. And they were like, right, we're going to come in, new uniforms, new idea, so the Iraqis know that it's a clean slate. And they actually had a really passive, which is really weird for Marines, but they had a very passive mind. They wanted to come with a passive mind state. Now, the flip side to that is, regardless of what you've ever heard about the Marines, they are the greatest fighting force on Earth. The US Marine Corps, they're so uh, determined in the way they're taught. There's a beachhead, go and secure it. There's a shithole, go in there and get it. They're, they don't question, in they go, and they're very good at it. So of all the units to be ripping out to fuck with America, they fucked with the Marines. And Maddola, Mathis was their commander. So on the, just before H-Hour, his last paragraph was, be polite, be professional, but be prepared to kill everyone you see. <laughs> that's, that's still doing the rounds on Instagram, yeah. that meme. I heard it. Like, I literally I heard that. Take a Marine prayer and bang, off they go. But I'm like, yeah. what the fuck? SPs, bang, bang, bang. But they did that letter drop. They, they set a, about a 50,000-man camp up at Haditha Dam for the population to leave. Now, my uncle had, and, and I know some old-school guys that had been into Northern Ireland and, uh, and then, you know, Irish myself, so I've got relos over there. And, you know, you patrol as you get urban operations along the side of the building. They're tipping hot water and fat out on you. They're trying to get you in the fire lanes. Women, children. Well, you would have seen American Sniper. That is 100% on the money. So they didn't leave. No one went to that man camp. No one? No. Nah. Fuck all. Yeah. And, and then, so what do you do? Like, they, you had two main roads from Baghdad to Fallujah. Um, um, oh, I'll remember their names because they're all Michigan and Mobile. And they used to use young kids. So they'd sit like a six-year-old boy in the middle of the road. Now, they'd have an ambush set up. So there's this little Marine driving, leave Humvee in his convoy. Sees a kid on the road. He's got two choices. Run the kid over or stop knowing there's an ambush set up for his guys. <coughs> or they used to use the kids to dig the holes for their IEDs on the side of the road, mm. which is, a, is a, under the rules of engagement, that's a legal target. So you've got a 20-year-old Marine goes, do I, like, you know, do I shoot that kid or do I let him go and let him build that, you know, where that IED is going to hit one of my mates? That's they don't. They, that's what they were like, mate. They, they don't. And that's where yeah, you've got yeah. so many young soldiers now, especially those Americans that fought in the Alambar, questioning what they did. Yeah, qu- questioning it themselves, and then also you get yeah. the general public and the media picks up a story like that, and they're like, everyone's over. Our, our Marines are overseas, just killing children, and that well, becomes the headline. It fucks people up for life. In, in 05, when I was um, on that American. Um, program with the Yanks, we would do jobs, we were low pro, low visibility you know, bashing around Baghdad in like taxis and stuff and we'd be in Sada City and uh, either witness the an American military convoy get ambushed and then return fire or we'd get in a gun battle ourselves and then the Iraqis had sanitised the area then called the BBC out the American military just came through and killed um, innocent people 
and that would get splayed all over the world. You know, the, the military's killing innocent people. That's mm. how good they were. And, you, you know, you can't, you can't, once that's out there, you can't retract it. You can't take the journalist with you to, and most of them knew, but that was the messaging that got out. So hang on, when you say most of them knew, you're saying most journalists knew that they were getting yeah. washed or, or doctored stories and they ran them anyway. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to remember, and you see it now with Trump, and I was there, This is I got, I'm right into US politics because I was there during the election of 04 and they have a lot of uh, State Department's uh, political appointees. So you'll work for free in a campaign for on the premise if, that your candidate wins, you get a job in the State Department or something. And so you might have um, a Democratic media and a Republic President Bush write negative stories. So they want to write that Bush's policy is having a negative effect. They don't want to write... And the BBC was worse, mm. 100%. Yeah, it's... Um, my, yeah. I mean, my, my eyes are slowly getting open to... I'm paying more and more attention through, I mean, Trump, love him or hate him, he definitely made me start to learn and, and pay more attention to American politics. Flow and effect, I pay more attention to Australian politics. But, I mean, I, that's exactly the point that I'm getting on all of these. The more I focus on politics, the more I see that there is no national pride anymore. It's me versus the other team within my own country. I don't care if I make the whole country hate themselves, hate each other, as long as they pick my blue team over there, red team, and it's yeah, fucking yeah. gross. Well, I'll tell you one thing about that, and I'm not sure, do you know who Dakota Meyer is? Oh, the name, yeah, I've heard Rogan. Well, he's a, bring he's a, up a US Marine. Oh, the dude, Marine yes, to win the, the dude that played, yeah. He's out the, of control, right? And uh, anyway, he always talks about, I never want another 9-11, but I want another 9-12 because of how mm. America came together. It's the same after when Pearl Harbor got bombed. And this is the biggest mistake of terrorist group. What they're talking about now, um, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up and that Al-Qaeda is going to try to target one of the memorials. Worse Be than stupid. Because America's in turmoil now fighting. They would come together like that. Yeah. Nothing, And there's nothing more scarier than a united America. Yeah. Yeah, again, I've got to be careful. I love a good conspiracy, mate. And for mine, like a false flag right now is exactly what America needs. So we've got to be careful. I can, <laughs> I can give you it. So um, two weeks out from the 04 election, um, John Kerry was beating George Bush. John Kerry does a speech, I view drugs a greater threat to national security than terrorism. Four days later... Osama bin Laden makes a speech, I'm going to kill Americans and target America. George Bush wins the election the next week. Yeah. It's like they pulled him out of a basement. <laughs> uh, which is exactly what they did, maybe, well, allegedly. Well, Who knows? Know. <laughs> so, uh, and, and this is a great. So uh, the audience right now, and, and then most of them are, are AJs, there is a lot of civvies out there, um, and they're like, what the fuck? Why should we listen to this bloke? So you got back into private security. After private security, you decided to enlist in the intelligence corps, right? Yeah, so I started, I was, uh, I became a, um, I started as a 2IC and then I became a, um, a team leader because I was a little bit in awe. I was working with guys from 22 and CAG and, and Devgar and whatever, and they were just so um, hell-bent on a dick measuring comp. And I'm like, fucking hang on, we're all going there. 
everyone gets a say type deal. And uh, Dan, who was the overarching officer, goes, all right, you're the boss. You can keep them under control. I'm like, you fucking kidding me? And I was the only Australian on the on the on the uh, with us, you know, Aussie one. So so it became a um, a team level literally because I could keep the peace. Um, and so then I started going to in, uh, meetings and briefs. And at that time, um, the company that had the intelligence contract at the English embassy, control risk, they're actually all ex-Aussie Inc. officers, Dolben and Trent and that. And so I just started hanging out with them and learning about intelligence. And I got more interested and fascinated in why we were doing something than actually doing it. And because, especially Trent, like the guy is an absolute phenomenal like mentor and guide. He's just awesome. And he really helped me kind of understand that whole process, and and I was just hooked, really hooked. And so I actually also felt I found my purpose in the military. Um, and so yeah, so that's why I came back and went into Incor. Uh, and then, and then, I mean, that was that sounds like, mate, I cannot believe the the chronological order. I, we got we got your bio, I got your bio, and we did some some checks, and I was like. Jesus Christ. So you're part of Intelligence Corps uh, and uh, you go to work for um, SOCOM. Yeah. And now as part of that, you go back overseas and your job is to, well, I mean, effectively you're creating target packs for people yep. so they can do targets. And and just so can you explain to um, the audience um who don't have a military background, what a target pack is and what an intelligence analyst does and, and then what is the what is the end state of those target packs? Okay, yeah, and that's this is where everyone's got themselves into trouble uh, because that's never uh, in any of the books. It's just like we wake up one day, the general mind trip, uh, you know, we're going to go here and find this bloke. But there's hours and hours and hours of time goes into that. So basically what happens... Um, and I'll give you a 24-hour, because we work in what's called the F3 EAD cycle, find, fix, finish, uh, analyze, disseminate, and it just keeps going. So find, right, so we'll talk about Belucci Valley as an easy one, and I would have information request, who is the insurgent commander in Belucci Valley? How many insurgents in Belucci Valley? Who is the bomb maker in Belucci Valley? Where do they get their weapons from? Things like that, right? You know, um, what are their ICOM names? And then we have what there's core sources and agencies. So agencies could be in an Afghan context, um, Afghan Army, uh, NDS, um, the police. Um, then you've got our strategic agencies, you know, ASD, DIO, whatever. Um, we have field human teams um, within the Australian Intelligence Corps that were over there. Um, so they're the agencies. So you have essentially a spreadsheet, and then you have sources. Who do you know or that might have that information? So it could be diggers at a patrol base, could be um, anything. You've just got to really liaison's a massive piece. You've got to essentially spread your net as far and wide. So you work out who can answer these questions, and you send them out um, to everyone, and then you start getting the replies back. Okay, so and and I'll talk about Bellucci because. Um, there's an articles about how I helped um, conventional guys go up and I got a bomb maker and whatever. Um, the intelligence guy at 
the patrol base, uh, we were on our course together, so we'd talk all the time. They were getting hit with IDs by this this bloke, uh, Hami, uh, Haji Hamdullah, big dude riding around in a motorbike, and you know, there's actually a documentary on Channel Ten that was filmed at the same time where um, they talk about how he just ID'd him and whatever. Anyway, so you, you, you get a picture, right? That's the guy's, and that's the, the uh, insurgent's name or the, the leader's name. I still remember. He lives in Quality Now Village. His compound C336. Uh, <laughs> you know, you just start building a pattern of life up. And so you, that all goes into it's a, and it's a legal format. You know, you've got to prove under law that he's a member of an armed insurgency, an armed insurgency. He's conducting operations against coalition forces and he's conducting operations against. Afghan forces. So they're the three legal, legal things you've got to prove through multiple sources. So you can't just get one letter, one bit of information and go, yeah, that's him and there he is. So then you get it all together. Old mate's go, pissed off that he bloody cut his grass. Or, yeah, my next-door neighbours are yeah, some have been like... My next-door neighbours are bomb maker. Ah, yeah, single source, unreliable reporting. Because that comes up a lot, and I will get to that, because that's one thing that pisses me off, because it's an accusation I get hit with all the time. Um, anyway, so... I'll build it up and I'll use, you know, I worked in what was called the fusion and targeting cell. So, you know, it was picture a shipping container with a big table in the middle and all the agencies around. And, um, you know, and so the Daigo guy or girl would uh, do an overlay with a mat. You know, you'd have a picture of the heart, whatever. And then when I get it, uh, and I would have a threshold for the boss. When I get it to that threshold, I, I then brief it to the intelligence officer, the OPSO, I said the three, the five and that. And they either go, yeah, good to go. Then it goes to the legal officer who checks it under the BLOAC and ROE. And um, then it goes to the CEO. Once all that gets approved, it goes to the high headquarters. So for us, it goes to Soda Southeast. And if they concurred with all the information on the in the JAPEL pack, the Joint Priority Effects List, he, that insurgent would then be given a, an objective name and put on the JAPEL which then meant we could target that insurgent. Fuck. And then because um, we're allowed – what were they still using? Are they? Are we allowed to disclose the, the, the nicknames of them or is that not a bloody thing? No, it's all out there. Because they were – were they cards or were they uh, – no, they were no, just no. different? So um, in Afghanistan, initially um, they were all weapons. We just – because there was no real performer initially when the guy started doing it. So a lot of our – Objectives were Axe, Brick, Ranch, Trebuchet, Katana, you know, Winchester, these kind of names. Then we got designators. So the first ones we got were YA. So every um, insurgent that I put up for nomination for the Japel had to be like young apprentice, Yankee apostle. And the reason for that is the insurgents might go through Kandahar, Kazaruzgan and other task forces would get that information and they'd go, YA, oh, that's a 66 target. So they might send an email, hey, young apprentice is moving through our AO, you know, should we pick him up? Are you following him? You know, is it going to wreck one of your... Because we might be observing him, you know. Uh, for example, we wanted to know how they got from Aruzgan into Quetta and how long that took. Because initially we thought it was a couple of days, but it turned out to be about four hours. So we would get information, you know, and then senior insurgent commander came in last night for Shura, 
we're like, there's no way they've come in and out in a night. So through a liaison I had with one of the local partnering forces, they got two of their blokes on bikes to do the trip. And we're like, fuck, it was four hours. So then all that reporting that we dismissed for a year all of a sudden become irrelevant. So we had to go back over and go, well, that's actually true. There's indicators and warnings that that's happening. So, but then if, you know, for example, Soda Southeast or the ODA down in Zabul or something got wind of it, this guy on the Chappelle coming through and whacking, that's going to ha- hurt our operation. So they would pay heels, you know, it's, you know, Fred Aiden Fox down at the ODA. We've got Yankee Apostle coming through. You know, do you want us to grab him or are you watching him or whatever? So it's a fair bit of that going on in the soft community, but that's why, you know, we started with YA and we, then we got MS, Massive Strike, whatever. So you, I mean, from what you've just answered the question, but every movie you watch, they, they make out that any American intelligence agency is over there to measure dicks and keep all the information for themselves. But you, you're saying passage of information between nations was pretty free when it came to intelligence. Hundred percent. We had um, we had Americans in our uh, fat sea with us. Yeah. So one of our obviously one of the programs that one of our FEs did was a um, counter narcotics program, the drug interdiction. They'd go up in a helmet and blow drug labs up. You know, the DEA had uh, analysts with inside the fat sea. We had mm. Coic and Jayative analysts in there. So we truly we would operate in helmet a lot. So I'd talk to the Brits. Yeah, no, no. And even when I was in Iraq um, for in fourteen, fifteen, or even then, the SEALs down at Ripley, you know, I, I got, well, because I'd worked with them in, in Iraq in 04, 05, 06, I, I could talk Iraq, I'd talk American. Um, so I knew what to say. And, and, you know, I used to brief their SEAL commander every Wednesday night and, you know, got a commendation and, you know, yeah, exchanging information happened on a daily basis. Mm. That's that's interesting. Um, so, how do you back then? I mean, you were younger and and than you are now. Obviously, cool cool statement, Max. Um, how did you go in briefing some of these big dick people? I mean, and and there's some other things we can talk to later on. You weren't just briefing SEAL team commanders, and you know, um, uh, I can't even think of some of the some of the high like you were briefing some big dick people. What do you do before you walk in and you're like, uh, what I'm about to say could get a lot of people killed? Or um, and so how do you fucking calm the fuck down? So there's two things. One, I was you're exceptionally trained well at Dinty, and um, then I was exceptionally well mentored when I first got into SOCOM. My myo had been around forever, uh, and the S2 at the time who I deployed with. Um, they were really, really, really good at um, making sure you knew your stuff, if that makes sense. And I'll give you an example. I'd been in, in Afghanistan for four days in um, late November 2010. And one of my jobs every morning, I would go to the OCCPU, which was like the Afghan Coordination Centre for Arisgan, and they would have a 9 o'clock intelligence meeting and have all their intelligence agencies and guys around a table and you know, talk about what's going on in the battle space, and then I'd go back and write a report or whatever. TK was getting uh, rocketed from a village called Sefer which was up on one of the hills. If if you, uh, from the far end of the uh, runway uh, on Camp Holland, the hills up there, that's where the 105s were coming from. 
Anyway, um, I was sitting in the fat seat and the AC of Triple Six, so the SATG partner force, uh, Major Nick, come in and goes, Heels, come next door quick. And I'm like, all right, whatever. Go in there and they're getting ready for a brief. And then my boss, who was a captain and then the S2 major sits there next to me and we're kind of against a wall and the CO comes in and the RSM and the OPSO and, you know, then uh, Nick starts talking about, look, one of our partner force commanders has just given us information that the rockets are at this compound. And then he goes, now I'm going to turn over to heels for the intelligence. I had no warning, no, what? Hang on. And I'd only been there about a week, right? And they're all looking at the TVs. I didn't have a presentation. I had to brief off the map. I go, well, sir, I have heard that information before. Uh, it's, it corroborates with what I've got. You know, Sir Fidagabi, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then the CEO, who I actually knew very well, turns around to the RSM and goes, anything from the RSM? And the RSM asked a couple of questions. Anything from the OPSO? The OPSO asked a couple of questions. All right, yeah, looks at the Nick. All right, yeah, I'm happy. Go find them. And I'm like, what? Off they went. And I go to the S2, I go, what's going on? He goes, oh, they're going to look for those rockets. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, you know, you, you corroborated and confirmed where they are, so they're going to look for them. What do you mean? I just said that, no, yeah, and they're going to look for them. We play with live ammo here, Hills. And from that, <laughs> from that moment, I didn't rest, didn't sleep. When I did a brief, I didn't say anything that I couldn't corroborate or know to be true. Because like you said, guys are going out after it. And I'd been in those shoes too and had lost mates. You know, I'd lost a couple of really good friends at Fallujah and stuff and had been shot. And So I wore it really personal. Every time I briefed, no matter was it from an alpha, like a platoon commander, to the prime minister, to sent whoever it was, you know, uh, it was going to be well-researched and, and on the money. Did you ever know what assets... So you're going to go out and brief because I'm a complete lay in his terms, mate. The only the only intelligence we ever got, or the, the only world of intelligence I was part of, was as a lands corporal when we got intelligence reports read from our team leader, and he's like, "Yeah, there's enemy, there's a red Hilux in Afghanistan, yeah, and they might, they might, and it's really rough, um, and it could have a bomb on it." And you're like, "What the fuck?" You're so I have no idea, right? Um, especially not at the higher levels, but did, what assets? So, so knowing that that context, what assets? Do you know what assets you would have in in actioning those target packs? And then, so you say, hey, there's a there's a predator, or there's a fucking you know, no, or there's no. a you've, you've got a whole SAS team or squadron that's ready to go. It depends, and it changed from job to job. Uh, there were times when. Uh, especially in 2012 where the CEO would go, right, you've got that FE for two weeks for this purpose, uh, you know, targeting Fred Flintstone or whatever. We always knew what assets we had because it would be part of, you know, int briefs first and then the ops, you know, take that information and they would then come up with, you know, a couple of colors on how they're going to execute. There were times, and this is also not reported very well, um, the reason it's the joint priority effects list we might want to kill someone. We might want to detain them. We might want to um, just watch them. We, like, for example, there was a uh, insurgent commander in Sarkum that we couldn't get to because it was so close to the base. Every time he went there, very good spotter network, he just lay low. So in uh, one of my uh, meetings with the Afghans, 
they would go, all right, Special Forces, do you have anything you want to say? And I said, yeah, I want the compound for Mullah Rahi Mullah because Quetelov's going to go and kill him. And they were like, yes, write it down, you know, Quetelov, Mullah Rahi Mullah, Sarkom, kill him. And the Aussies in the room are freaking out. You can't say that. And I'm like, why not? We don't do that. But I knew that there was leaks there. We knew, like, you know, it was. I had to, we had to get approval, the bosses on you. You know, I didn't go there just saying it. It was, a, it was an actual operation. Me walking in there saying those two sentences was an approved plan operation. Sure as shit, 24 hours later, that dude's in, in Pakistan. So we achieved the effect, you know. We wanted him out of the battle space and we got it. And that's not understood or explained a lot. And we did a lot of that. Even the scan budgie, right, the UAV. Now, we had to use it. We hated it. Because they called it the mosquito. They heard it. So if we had no intention, for example, of going to Mirabad, we'd put it up over Mirabad. So the insurgents go, oh, the mosquito's in the air. They're looking for us. Don't leave. So that was a, an offensive weapon we used. So, yeah, we knew exactly what we had. What our um, special operations are all about targeted effects. What's the effect we want to achieve? It's not just... And, and Perth... Partly because of the way some of the guys have written their books, uh, and the, this is where the Brett reports got it wrong. The whole kill capture thing—it was—it was about an effect. What effect are we trying to achieve in the battle space? Fuck, <laughs> mate, this is uh, this is an eye opener for for someone who's never been involved in it, and uh, and, um, and the I guess balances are phenomenal. Like it's not just. Hey, there's old mate in this compound. Go and get him. It goes through, like I said, the legal officers in every meeting. He can call, you know, nope, no go, go, no go. Co, xo, you know, in a, in a Afghanistan SOTG between the co, the RSM, uh, and the xo, you've probably got fifteen trips, thirty years of special operations experience. You're not dealing with slouches. You're dealing with really competent. Um, commanders, the S2 is probably only second or third or third trip. You know, you're not dealing with mugs. You're dealing with people who really, really know what's going on. So did you ever get, knowing that, I mean, I know, did you ever get it wrong or was there ever things where you, where collateral damage was a little bit looser and you're like, fuck? Um, like- I'll say no, and that's not because I'm patting myself on the back. That's because of the checks and balances. Like, I didn't have the power. Like I said, in that, uh, when the boys went up to Sefer Agabi and looked for the rockets, I didn't send them up there. I provided information or intelligence. And then, you know, the, the command asked me more. Like, there was one brief I gave in 2012 um, on a, the key insurgent for the Australian Defence Force at the time, Abdul High. He was a, a big uh, IED instructor facilitator. And my brief probably went for about half an hour. The Q&A went for about 40 minutes to the point I had to have a rest after. I had a headache. Like, it was that thorough. Why are you saying that? Why do you assess that? Why do you think that? And then the CO will then have conversations with his OPSO or his FEs, and then they come up with multiple plans, not just we're going to go do this. These are the, the options. Which one do we want to do? So do you – I mean <clears> – <throat> The UAV story is, is one that 
I can um, kind of reflect on and go, as, as an infantry digger, diggers on the ground more often than not will see something going on that doesn't suit their current individual environment and they will instantly go, these fucking idiots, they don't even know that the Taliban can hear their UAV. I mean, and that's one occasion where you've confirmed it was for a deliberate intent. Is it safe to assume that all of, or not all, but the majority of these other situations where young diggers are like, we're going the long way, the boss is an idiot, or the int we've got's terrible, X, Y, Z. I mean, I saw your eyes then. I'm aware that young lieutenants can be idiots at times. But is it safe to say that diggers not knowing two up, three up, the bigger picture is probably what could explain a lot of the circumstances where diggers get frustrated at stupidity? Um, I don't know because the level of detail of intelligence that we used at 66 compared to what the conventional guys got is was chalk and cheese. And, and they're not doing specific targeting ops. They're doing uh, bigger ops. But I'll give you the example and it's the one that's, you know, it's in the media and, and whatever. When I went up to Bellucci to get Hammy Dula, the conventional guys at the base had actually arrested him a couple of times prior. But because of the 94 hours from detention to either um, convict or release, and they couldn't get assets up to get him, they had to let him go. So he felt invincible, and they felt really crushed. And they also didn't know because... Because at a patrol base, you don't have access to top secret information. They didn't know what we had on him at a top secret level, who he was talking to, where exactly he fitted in. Who, you know, we were trying to find out where he was getting his components from. Uh, our techs would take the IDs with them and exploit it, so we would have biometric data and DNA. You don't really see that at the patrol base either. But when um, when that day that they had the sure at the back of the patrol base and he turned up was carrying on, he didn't know that I was in a Blackhawk at TK about to come up. And they, not all the diggers knew either, so they're kicking stones going, this is bullshit, here he is again. They knew that he was responsible. And then here, the the Blackhawk, and they've kind of looked up, he's looked up, and within three minutes, you know, I've got him bound, gagged, blindfolded, and fucking belly up in the Blackhawk. And I'll never forget, in all my career, as we're lifting off, that whole fucking patrol base was like at a rock concert, just cheering because... This is the fucker that they've had trouble with, and finally we've been able to get him off the battle space. Mm. So they didn't know a lot of that background stuff, but we did. And you got to remember, every SOTG, especially a lot of the guys in, you know in the FEs, come out of battalions. So, like in, in 2012, when you had your insider attacks, no one felt it more than the shooters. They're like, like when. Um, you know, it happened on my birthday, but when the three guys at Patrol Bass were hit, the three RAR guys got shot, mate, you know, the majority of patrol commanders were all ex-3RAR blokes. They're like, they're mm. fucking guys up there. We're going to go and help them. And that also isn't seen either. Like, they take that, that, that shit personal, you know, whether it be one RAR, two RAR, wherever. You know, they looked at, like, little brothers or little cousins and, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can definitely feel for that. Um I, th- I think there's there's a there's a fine line between what you were talking about before, where you're saying that that uh, to be good at your job, you, you need to understand the why, uh, and then understanding that top secret intelligence most likely won't trickle down to infantry diggers. 
Um, I, I guess, I mean, that, that exact scenario that you just explained then happened to us. Caught a guy, sent me waves, thought he'd be locked up for good. He had um, explosive residue all over him. Three days later, we caught him again. And we're like, what the fuck are these idiots doing? Looking back now, um, I personally would have loved the why. But I, I do appreciate that you can't get every digger from every coalition country briefed so in. I, I knew a lot of um, the ink guys at the patrol bases, so I'm never, ever, ever going to say anything bad against them. But that's their failing because you don't need the top secret information to get the why. Mm-hmm. They can they can sanitise because all the all the the reason something's top secret, it's not the information; it's how we get it. Mm. You know, do we get it from a human source or from a technical source or whatever? But the actual information, you can be told. We can sanitise it down. And so there's, there's three of us on this conversation now, right? And if one of these is a source, that because there's only three, it might be top secret because if it gets out, we go, well, fuck, I didn't say. Must be, you know, mech. So if there's ten of us, there's a bigger circle of knowledge. So it might only need to be secret mm, because there's true. more guessing. And then instead of being... Uh, the information being, you know, we're going to have uh, a, um, a video link at this time. It might be uh, in the next three days they're going to have it. They had a video link three days ago or whatever. It's not as direct, if that makes sense. So you can, you know, the guys at the tribe base can say, look, the bigger picture is SOTG have been tracking these, you know, the facilitator. So why they may release the, the dude who built the ID, it's because they want him to catch up with the dude he's getting his components from. But they're they're actually aware of, or they're tracking him, or you know they've got a source in the area. Look, you can get a little bit more information, so you're not completely blind. But that's where. Yeah, I think that's the. I think I think diggers, um, and speaking from experience, trusted shoot like like special forces shooters. They're like these guys. Well, they're hammers. They will fucking hit nails, and they are professionals, and blah blah blah. But that never, it never trickled down with the intelligence side of it. And I don't know that, I mean, that, that is a generational, I think, you know, your sergeant shit talked intelligence and then everyone, so everyone's like, m- maybe intelligence is too good at doing what they do and keeping secrets. And then it was like, honest, what the fuck it, are they doing? A lot of it is because you didn't have TS connectivity at a patrol base. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that's literally it. You know, you'd be, you'd have secret. So, um, You'd have your secret phones and and your secret computers. So, and everything I brief was at a TS level. So I would either I'd, I'd really have to sanitise or build another quad slide to get up to. And the other thing we were aware of was counterintelligence. Like the Afghans were all over the patrol bases, and um, and I learnt that in Iraq in 05, You know when I was working with the Americans, one of the he's one of my best mates now to still this day. He just peeked to the Iraqi cleaners and that. They would know everything that's going on in that base more than anyone else. So there's also a counterintelligence side to it, um, you know. So there was a number of reasons, but uh, you can still answer the why. That the mm. young... Yeah, I don't get me wrong. I mean, dig, yeah. yeah. That, that would have made a huge difference. But for morale, yeah. for, for everyone's, like, intent going after this dude, just we didn't, if someone had to turn around and said... They let him go for a reason. Nothing else other than it was a deliberately, uh, it, it was deliberate that we let him go, not he slipped through the cracks. That's all we needed to know that he didn't yeah. get out because of someone's fucker. And then everyone's happy. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know from, from, and I did, you know, the, the five rotations. Um, 
No, I'd be lucky to sleep four hours a day, you know, because mm. we also had to do the debriefs. So we pull those blokes off, like that old mate Handula out of Belucci. I'm in the room with him straight away at the ISA. Then I've got to write reports and I'm looking at other, you know, it's not like you've seen the movies, it was me in the battle space. So I might have 30 insurgents in theatre and I'm looking at them mm. all um, and looking at who's presenting, you know, who's alive. Are we in a rotary period? What are the, what's the other FE? Because, you know, we had several FEs um, doing stuff. And um, so sometimes then you had personality issues. And you've got to remember in Afghan, the overall commander of Aruzgan was an American. And um, there were times where he would jump into the Australian Oodaloo because, you know, we all knew each other. So we'd go for a coffee or... The biggest thing I'd do is we had the best food at Camp Russell, so I'd invite some of the boys up for a dinner and, you know, and over that dinner you'd do more, you'd find more shit out um, than anything. And, and, you know, going back to when I was in the Navy, the conventional EOD techs in Baluchi in 2011 were guys that I was in the Navy with. So whenever they were in TK or in, in Holland, I'd have lunch or dinner with them and, you know, they were like, oh, if we go to this village so colour colour, the, the, whoever's making the bombs is left-handed because they're twisted this way. Mm. Whoever's making them in quality now is the other way because they're twisted another way. The only way you get that is talking to people, but not everyone has those connections or can do it. 100%. Yeah. So over coffee. Well, Max keeps going. All right, we're gonna to have to. He, he'll. Well, it'll yeah. stop recording. You still got me? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'll just stop recording. Max will try and jump back in in two seconds. I assume. Give me two seconds. What year were you over there? Uh nine, ten. One trip, but through Christmas. Um, yeah, two thousand nine and ten. It was a big snow that year, wasn't it? Just before we left, yes. We got um what did we get there? We were there for I was there for nearly nine months. Um so we got there coming into summer, we were there all summer, and then they fucking made us walk out, which was because we got we, I was in Marshall the whole time, Marsh yeah. caught Marshall and the oh, yes. you know Collie now very well. Who's that? You'd know Collie now very well. The village. Oh, maybe, mate. I've data dumped half the names of the the fucking places over there. But no, yeah, they they lost too many bushmasters, so they're like, all right, we're, we're going to pick you up from Chora. You got to walk out, and it was knee deep snow, so yeah. it was it was turning. It was we had full summer, full winter in one trip. Anyway, you're yeah. back, Max. I, I, I where did I lose um, him? Well, he's been able to have mates that you can sit down and have a coffee and conversation with. Oh mate, I think it's. I think that's one yeah. thing we've always done well. Hey, is that interpersonal stuff? Yeah. So, yeah. but the, the the I can't believe. So, so going from being an intelligence analyst in, in that particular theatre, working with those guys, and then and then we're talking now to the uh, Syrian chemical yeah. weapons attack. 
Was that part of, and we're talking about you briefing in people and, and military leaders. Can you take us through that, mate, and what it is like briefing people at that level and being involved in something that is that, I mean, that is real. Uh, that is not so a digger. Obviously, being uh, the unit I was at, that was our bag, you know, chemical, biological, radiological warfare. And every year, the CO has a retreat, and I would put together a brief of, you know, threats, three, six, 12 months. And uh, having lived in the Middle East and, and knowing, you know, it like the back of my hand, I looked at the Arab Rising and everything, and, and I just knew the way it was going to play out. So that was my big, um, I guess, call for the year. And this was January, February of 13, that, you know, Assad's going to panic and you're going to get, a, you know, you're going to get chemical weapons attacks in Syria. So I briefed that to the new CO January, February 13 and would update and whatever. So when it happened in August and, and um, you know, yeah. So you were yeah. confident he was going to gas. And what was his, what's his motivations behind so gassing? he's an Alawite Shia and he's gassing disruptive Sunni, just like Saddam did with the Kurds and, you know, and that's where I, I looked at it from. They've done it before. You know, they've got the technology. They, they don't care about the other side. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of made the bold prediction in January, February, and so when it happened, I already had the briefs done and everyone was kind of, you know, getting a heads up. And, and it was funny because uh, the CEO goes, all right, you're going to Canberra to brief uh, at SOHQ. Now, the systems that we used at Holsworthy were different to the systems they used in Canberra, and I didn't know that. So I just thought I could drive down a, to SO headquarters, log in and brief off, you know, pull my brief up. So I get there and I get into the room and, uh, you know, seven P's, preparation, blah, 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 and I get there early on. Now I'm in civvies, anyway, so I'm looking for the, the GIS. I'm going, hey, uh, where's the GIS system? Oh, we don't use that here. What do you mean you don't use it here? Uh, we use AICnet. Oh, okay. Do they talk? Oh, no. Why? Because my brief's on the other system. So you don't have it with you? Well, no. I thought I could log in and, oh. So I had to brief these commanders off a map. But because I knew the stuff, it actually made me look better. And they've gone, look, come back on Thursday with your effing brief. Yep, no dramas. So then I came back. That was on the Monday or Tuesday, on the Thursday, and it was standing room only. Um, but it was because, like, I knew what I was talking about. This is Fookless. This is what they've got here. This is how many sites. This is what they, you know, Sarin, Simon, this is where they make it. This is the unit, blah, blah, blah. And then um, next thing you know, I'm with the, the CO and the OPSO and the DOC, and we're at Army headquarters. You've got all the heads of all the agencies, and then... Oh, I was yeah. So, okay. So, how how does he think he's going to get away with gassing and the backlash internationally? This is this well, is some, is it so, arrogance? Was it um, the key element for Syria is Russia? Russia's got a big naval base in Tartus, and they're very well connected. So he kind of hedged his bets that Russia was going to back him. No one had any international respect for Obama anyway. So um, 
they kind of wagered that Obama... And remember the big red line? Obama's red line, and if you cross it, they knew he wasn't going to do anything. And when he didn't, they just went nuts. So, yeah. No. So they didn't give a shit. They are like, oh, fuck. So it was weakness on, yeah, on, on, used, on the US's he part. He only used sarin a couple of times. I'm going to talk about now is open source. He only used sarin a couple of times. He used chlorine a lot. And the ambiguity under the uh, chemical, the OPCW, uh, which is the Chemical Weapons Conventions, is chlorine's um, deemed as an incapacitating agent and a chemical warfare agent. So whenever you hear about the chlorine bombs and that, that's a technicality. Where When you use sarin like you did in, in August and that, that's a chemical warfare attack. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so... So but that was my that was my job. How, how do you brief and, and then picking it? I, I mate, that is fucking phenomenal. And then I mean, these people in these rooms are listening to an intelligence. They know what the fuck they're talking. Like you, see, you hear about people running security departments in sorry politicians who sit on committees and. Are they coming in and listening so, to these sort of uh, conversations? This, was, or they... there was no, this first one at Army Headquarters, there was no politicians. It was all the head of your agencies. And they're um, exceptionally smart in what they do and direct. And uh, no one's in the room that isn't there for a purpose. There's no backslappers and there's no dead weight. Um, and uh, you're also there for a purpose. You don't get out of your lane. Sit down, shut up. Talk when you ask questions, um, and and my my there's no way my boss would have put me in there if he wasn't a million percent confident in my ability, my information too. So there's a pat in the back just getting invited for a start. Um, but the dynamics in the room was was intense and and um, very eye opening because I also experienced the following year when the Islamic State went on their warpath. Yeah, so this is this is um, you were part of this. So what was your involvement in briefing the Islamic State? Was it was it a major so, part? Of I, so again, because of my time in Iraq and everything, when they started on there, I, I called what that was going to happen straight in two thousand eleven. I knew exactly what was going to happen, um, and I'd written about it previously. You know, it was literally you've got to understand. The Arabs didn't design Iraq and Syria. The British and French did. Literally got a Sykes, it's called the Sykes-Picot line. They literally got a ruler and drew a line across the map, and that divided Iraq and Syria. But they never saw that. And um, you know, understanding the history of the Ba'ath Party and you know all that stuff, and I won't give a history lesson, but understanding all that um, and understanding what was going on in Iraq at the time for a lot of the Western, you know, with Fallujah at Ramadi, the Western Desert, the, um, because they were they're, they're Sunni and, and Sanam was a Sunni, they had a good life when Sanam was in charge and he really persecuted the Shia in the South. Now the Shia run the, you know, the, the parliament, they're really taking a lot of retribution out. So life for a Sunni in Al Anbar was better under the Islamic State than it was under a Shia Baghdad government, or would have been. So it wasn't like a, you see World War II where all the tanks went into, went into France. 
It was literally the local policeman was a Sunni at Beji at Takri at Ramadi, and they just turn around to their partner and go, "Look, tomorrow I'm taking my uniform off and I'm raising Islamic State flag. If you're here, I'm going to shoot you. If you're not, you're not." And they just go home. So that's literally what happened. It was just the Sunni took over Sunni lands. It wasn't a massive military campaign of like World War Two. It was just them kicking the shear out. And so I go into work and everyone's in a bit of a fuck, you know, because one of the roles SOCOM's got is like right now in Afghanistan, do we have to evacuate, do we do a NEO? Do we have to get the embassy out and stuff? So I um, started briefing the CO because SOCOM comes together as joint task force because the CO can grab assets out of different units and souls and, you know, won't get into that, but... So it's not like a unit gets designated. The CO will be the uh, task force commander. Even at tactical side groups the same. Anyway, so I started briefing him and go, look, sir, the Islamic State isn't going to get south into Baghdad. They're not going to get past Karma. They're not going to hit here because there you hit your, uh, your Shia areas. And again, I was bang on the money of that because it's not what they were after. Yes, there's, they've got elements within Baghdad in Sunni neighbourhoods, but... En masse, they just wanted to reclaim Kukuk, you know, Tikrit, Beji, Fallujah, Ramadi, Al-Qaim, the Sunni areas, which is what they did. So was this like a civil war yeah. where, oh, yeah. I mean, it effectively is, isn't yeah. it? Well, Sunnis it versus stopped. Shia again. And the Sunnis are like, yeah. And yeah. they're like, hey, we just, we just want this yeah. part. Can you not yeah. fuck, and can you not just other, be involved in it? Uh, and I won't get real deep into it, but there was some other stuff between wanting a Sunni corridor between Qatar and and um, Turkey because Qatar wanted to sell natural gas into Europe, uh, which is the Russians didn't want, which is because the Russians make all their money selling gas into Europe. So that's why they supported Assad so strong. And, you know, I could go on for hours about that. But but basically, um, so anyway, so I started briefing that. And then when we ramped up to go, literally seven years ago, yeah, that's how I wound up. And I'd worked for that CO in Afghanistan and domestically previously too. So your first, your, your last couple of comments, your predictions are on the money. Are you willing to make one now about what's yep. going to happen in Afghanistan in the next five years? Uh, yep. Um, the south where we were, and I spoke to some people in TK and Kandahar recently, it's, it's benign and it'll stay that way. In non-Pashtun areas, there'll be conflict, as we're seeing in the Panjir and that now, because the, the Taliban came out of Kandahar and the Pashtun areas. And again, you know, I, I, speak, I spoke about the Sykes-Picot line. In Afghanistan, the same thing happened. A British guy called Duran drew a line between Pakistan and Afghanistan. But if you look historically, that was Pashtunistan, which is their, their main area. So that'll, that'll um, go back to... Um, relatively peaceful, I'll say. I don't think... Life's not going to be what it was for women, but it's not going to be as bad as it was either. Um, you're going to get resistance in the north um, and it'll go back to tribal fighting. As you guys know, tribal conflict and tribal allegiance is everything. It's the backbone of Afghan culture. And that's what annoys me with a lot of these... Um, academics that are writing all this crap now in the media, they haven't once mentioned tribal alliances. They talk about the Taliban's going to talk to China or whatever. Well, who gives a shit? What are the Hazarans going to do? Or the Dinaran, you know what I mean? The Pashtun and, 
that the Tajiks, that's where your conflict has always been in Afghanistan. You know, always will be and always has been is between the tribal. So um, unless, and it's in the Taliban's favour to get a tribal council together, you know, an emirate of Afghan Jirga with all the tribes being represented in some sort of parliament. Unlike the Islamic State, um, the West has already acknowledged the Taliban and that's the biggest hurdle, being able to have, you know, um, a voice at the UN or the World Health Organization, which they never, ever would give the Islamic State, where because they've got that, they can negotiate, right, we'll let humanitarian aid in on this proviso world. We'll bring humanitarian aid in if women can go to school. So mm. you're going to get a lot of that for the next 12 months. Look at North Korea. They don't let aid organisations go. They're in a famine and, you know, how many million are dying at the moment. The, the Taliban won't do that because it's so visible. Yeah, that's what I've noticed. I mean, it's I, I can only get my news at the moment from mainstream outlets, which is always risky. But from what I have seen, I mean, there's a, there's a distinct change in tone from the Taliban we saw over the last 20 years to the Taliban that's going and doing messages to the Western world now. And they are, it seems, I mean, there, there does still seem like there's some dudes out there just itching to cut heads off. But the guys at the top, they seem like they are, they want to be in control, but they are open to meeting somewhere in the middle. So, so, and, and I, I, I spoke about this in, in the media last week. Think of how many we killed in 20 years, the Yanks, the Brits, and they've still got a, a, an allegiance, right? But those young Talib fighters that have grown up having their ass kicked know that at some point if they cross some line, they'll get their ass kicked again because they've turned conventional. Mm. Like, you don't think you could stick a pred up now and with a few hellfires, pick some of these checkpoints apart. The reason we had trouble is they would either go and hide in Pakistan or they'd fan out. Now they're sitting at checkpoints in technicals. Hello, the Americans do very good in that environment. You know, they would have maps in the Pentagon, and I'm sure somewhere in Canberra they're on the same thing, just locking them up. You know, if you get over... This is why the 31st of August is going to be interesting. The Americans haven't finished their evacuation and the Taliban get a bit out of line... This is right up Americans' alley. You know, they're all out in the open. Mm. You know, a few strafing runs with a couple of Apaches and a few Hellfires and job's back on. We, we want them out in the open. Mm. But they know that. Like Mullah Barada, who's, you know, he was, him and Mullah Omar started it. He was in jail in Pakistan for a while. He's an old man now. He's, you know, the American, he was part of the Mujahideen when the Americans armed him. Um, he, they're done with war. They want to govern. Um, they don't want to lose anymore. They, they know what the new world order is about. They're not that dumb to think that American politics can change like that. New president, um, you know. So it's not in their best interest to to go all the way back to where they were. And a lot of the people writing those stories have never been in Afghanistan. Mm. Never spoken or fucking. And, and you, you'll see now, um, I, I attack academics, Greg Button's the worst. Guy wouldn't know a Taliban if he was standing in front of him, yet he's on every news outlet. Like, my head. I was about to say that. There's, there's a bunch of um, names and faces doing all of the int reporting on behalf of 
and they're not government officials. They're just they're, they're most of them ex-military, um, just giving opinions in in place of facts. Mate, you're about as educated as anyone I've ever spoken to on this stuff. And and let's let's be bold and go the most educated on this stuff of anyone I've ever spoken to. Do you put your hand up for interviews? Like when, when Sky News and Channel 9 go, hey, let's get someone who actually knows what they're talking about to give us some insights on Afghanistan. Yeah, I did, I did Channel 9 last week. My problem is I won't tell them what they want to hear. I'll tell them the truth. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. We had we had a problem, mate. We've had this problem so many with 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 uh, newspapers with and and I don't know if I'm not going to mention them with, with with different outlets and they're like, hey, would you like to comment on the on the disastrous state of affairs and the horrible mental health of veterans? I'm like, nah, they're yeah. they're pretty good. You know, to be a lame, like, nah, they're pretty good. We're doing well. You know, blah blah blah. And they're like, yeah, sorry, <laughs> yeah. you didn't make it onto the TV show. And you're like. Oh, why is that, mate? Do you know what I mean? Veteran of the day was Steve Price, and um, you know then it was oh, do you know what? You know you want to come on or do you want to comment about this? And I, you know, and I'd comment, and they'd go oh, oh, okay, like leave. For example, let him go. What do you mean, let him go? Well, just fucking let him sort it out. It's their country. Oh, but should him intervene? Why? We're not intervening in Africa. We're not intervening in North Korea. We're not intervening here. We're not intervening there. Why? Why? But it's their country. They asked, like, for, in my biggest comment with Afghanistan is they asked us to leave. Mm. Like, they don't want us there. Okay. And then you'll, you know, and yes, there's going to be. Um... That's a good fucking. Sorry, mate. That was a good point, actually. No one's ever bought a funny story. Yeah. Yeah. They asked us yeah. to leave, so yeah. we left. And- Sorry, it's we gone left. to what they wanted. Like, and this is what does my head in in Australia, because our leaders don't didn't know the Taliban was formed in Aruzgan. Everyone I ever spoke to, the older ones, used to tell me. And because when I went back in 2012 and I had um, grey in my beard, it's called Spingari, the old and wise. The older Talibs or the older locals are telling me about the old days with Russia and. And, you know, it's like one of my sources in Baghdad in 05, he goes, oh, we're all Ba'athists. You, you couldn't live in Baghdad if you weren't. Aruzgan, they're all Talibs. But all a Talib is, is a student, which is why all their commanders and mullahs teach her. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they all wanted to shoot us or they didn't want to help us and they didn't want a better life. But you, you can't be in Aruzgan and not know the Taliban. We've got to understand that. We've got to accept that. Absolutely. Which is why I've been very strong with the vetting process of everyone we're extracting back to Australia and refugee statuses. Yeah. Um, this is something that we've, there's people in government that are quite strong advocates for, hey, 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 let's just vet hey, some of I, these people. because. And and I get it, and 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 there's an emotional aspect, and I can see some of my mates sort of went went on MRTF two, and they're like, yeah, but you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, sorry, 10 years ago, he was uh, he worked with Australian soldiers, and he was an interpreter for three months, and he really helped us. Like, yeah, brother, but he's been in there for 10 years, changed. and now and, and I'm, the I'm, I'm, I won't use any names, but I speak to someone who has written a book about this and um, didn't understand some of it. A lot of it changed. So when we got there and the Dutch got there, 
half the, the population joined us and backed us. Yet we're going to join them. They're going to get rid of the bad Talibs. And their words, bad Talibs. Then Prime Minister Gillard in 12 announced the withdrawal. That's when you saw the spike of insider attacks. Because in Pashtun culture, all they saw is we're abandoning them. So in that time between us leaving Camp Holland and now, they've resented what we did that we left. Because it's not in there. You Google Pashtun Wali and there's 12 key parts of their culture. Three of them we, we, we broke when we left in 2014. Mm. So it's that it's that old political, you know, we're going to leave like you cannot, like warriors, you need to go and stay for the cause. But then oh, we're talking about it as a, we, as we a political arm. I, I don't get why the Prime Minister had to come out and make an announcement. We could have drawn down and handed over slowly and no one would have known. It's same as the Americans. You know, this isn't just an Australian thing. The British did it. Why announce we're going to pull out at this date? Because in my job as a targeting and all the insurgent commanders stayed in Pakistan. Why come in? You're going to go. And all they did was send their messages in. Hey, when they leave, we're coming back in. Like Mullah Gafour, who was the insurgent commander for Darafshan, didn't come in for two years once we announced that we're leaving. He controls all of that area now. And he's like, hey, and this was this is the thing is that I think it's it's still you're still a product of the political system, you know, that you're a part of. And and Julia Gillard would have been like, hey, if she would have had an advisor that has no idea about the Middle East, she would have yeah. been, it would have been well, polling and statistics that would been like, hey, you know, the Middle East isn't polling super well. Let's organise a withdrawal, yeah, and you're going to go up ten points. 100%. And she's like, fuck yeah, that was. You know um, I mean, and you're like. Well, you, you're so, fucking over so whole countries. President Obama did it right. He got elected on a mandate to get out of Iraq. Three weeks after the US pulled out of Iraq, there was a jailbreak and a thousand Islamic State fighters got released and that was the genesis of what became ISIS. Had he left, they only had 3,000 troops in Iraq. Had he left them there, there would have been no Islamic State. Bullshit. Obama. Yeah. Oh, mate, I knew I didn't like him. I knew... I don't know why, but I knew. No, I, I don't it's like half of Obama's there's, policies. There's but there's more American troops in Afghanistan than there was three months ago because yeah, they right. announced a withdrawal. If if the, the US didn't announce, make any announcements and do continue their slow withdrawal down, there wouldn't be any chaos at the airport. Therefore, they wouldn't have to have, you know, was it four or five thousand plus SOCOM guys on the ground there? Mm. We wouldn't have had to do what we've got there. It just would have. You know, meet us here, dribs and drabs, slowly, un- you know. The, the way they got got out of Bagram, that, that was the catalyst. Dumb. Major airfield, leave it there. So is it safe to say, as a general rule for the, for the civilian or the general public out there, if a national leader makes a statement publicly on the news that we are getting out of a country, that might be really good for votes, but almost always really bad for the people on the ground? 100%. Think, okay, so they always talk about the long war and we can't keep troops in a country forever. You know, they've still got, there's still troops, US troops in South Korea. There's still US troops in Germany. There's still US troops in Italy. There's still US troops um, in um, uh, Japan. Yeah. There's still Australian troops in Butterworth. 
there's a reason why we did that. Mm. If we had still left troops in Iraq continuous, the Islamic State wouldn't have uh, re, wouldn't, wouldn't have been, I won't say born, but got reinvigorated. And if we had have left a small, they only need a small packet. You could have left, like you talk about Butterworth, you know, two companies of Australian soldiers in Kandahar with some some Marines and stuff. Afghanistan be good, you know, mm. just some some um, you know, hundred first guys at, at Bagram or Jalalabad. All you do, you just that big brother overlooking, and the Afghans would still be in the fight. Mm. You know, one of my very very good mates who was in TK in one with Karzai, and we did a lot of work in Afghanistan. He was over there uh, with the US. He had a, his own Iraqi commandos. They were banging it in two nights before all hell broke loose. And they were, you know, whacking Talibs and taking numbers and then an announcement and it's all, they're all in Catania. Anyway, I could get on my soapbox forever. No, that's good, mate. I mean, looking at the time anyway, unless, Max, you've got more Middle East questions, I'm going to quickly shift gears to the, do the general lifestyle, healthy habits kind of stuff. You got nothing else? No, mate. So shifting gears quickly. I mean, Swiss Eight. We're all about healthy, holistically healthy habits. Do you have Do you have a daily routine that you kind of stick to to keep yourself sane? Uh, sane's a great word, and I'll say twenty four hours because, like I said, I do a lot of stuff at night. Mindfulness is massive for me now since since I went to hospital. Um, just that thirty minutes centering, um, clearing the head. Uh, I find that massive. I journal every day. Um, I find that um, it's the most, um, as far as mental health for me, nothing has worked better than journaling because it, back even in my training days, I always had a training diary. And if I feel, you feel shit tomorrow and you journal, oh, I had a, got a bad email or, uh, you know, whatever it is, and you understand it, and you can acknowledge it all. For example, my birthday is coming up and, you know, I might see some of my family, so I know that that might be a bad day, so, um, or Father's Day or whatever, so you can prepare for it, and, and that's what the journal helps with. Um, so they're my two exercise, you know, walking. Uh, I'll go for a walk after this just to clear, re, you know, rethink, re, and I even did that when I was in Afghanistan and Iraq. Afghan, you know, I'd get up at 5.30, walk around the airfield, clear my head, get out in the sun, then I'd be locked away for most of the day. You know, uh, 4.30, I'd go and do weights for an hour, 5.30, shower, dinner, then back in there to brief at night. So exercise is massive for me. Um, because of my injuries and whatever, stretching, mm. uh, yeah, that's it for me, really. Yeah, I can't nice. stress the journaling. But journaling, mate, that's the key takeaway. I'll ask no more. I'm a fan of journaling. It's good. Well, it's just your thoughts, you know what I mean? Like, it's for you to read, and it's amazing, you know, because I've got chronic pain, and so I write my pain levels, and, and I'll write, you know, I would do, get a bit excited and do train too hard or whatever it is, but it just makes sense of everything. Hmm. Fuck, because I've never done it, mate, and I'm, I think this is something that I need to have a look at, right? Honestly, like, it, it, this, this seems to be the one constant people's like journaling is pretty sick and then 
also you wouldn't hear, you know, from 200 years ago from, from Lord Nelson's diaries because he journaled. You wouldn't know what happened in the the great... Like I said, everything goes back to history. You read some of the... Get a warm and read those World War I diaries, you know, and they literally, they're unpacking their mental health in a trench in their diaries. Mm. You know, lost Fred and Tom yesterday, Um, my feet's bad because of trench foot. They were unpacking and getting it on paper, and we've lost that skill. And it's whether you're talking to a mate or you're going to see a psychologist or you you just got to get it out. And, you know, for a, a, a lot of people, journaling's a personal thing. You have to show up to anyone. Um, but you need to understand why you have good days and you need to understand why you have bad days. Mate, that exact what, – what you just said then is exactly where Swiss 8 came from, right? I, I, I didn't realise it was journaling. I still don't – I wouldn't ever say that I keep a journal. I used to go, like, and I still do, something happens and I can't – move my brain away from thinking about a certain thing or I'm feeling like shit and I don't know why, I will write in Apple Notes a bunch of shit just to see, like, it's, it's almost like a reminder, come back and investigate this later. And I've now, looking at it, I, I, I clean them out like once a quarter. I've got 1,776 notes. I won't read half of them. And that's not the point. The point is to just get it out of my head and on yeah. metaphorical paper. And Otherwise it fuck- you ruminate on it. What's that? Otherwise you ruminate just exactly, exactly. Yeah. I can't get to sleep at night. If I've got one idea yeah. playing over and over and over again, yeah. I write it down and I'm like, I'll come back to that first thing in the morning. Almost never yeah. do, but I fall asleep straight after it. So Have just, you guys ever done mindfulness? In As in meditation, yeah. You are, so no, so we do introspect. Minds, you know, your emotional mind, your wise mind, and understand where that sits. No, I don't. Oh, so that's a big one. So we've got essentially three minds and... Guys like us usually sit in, uh, we want to get into the wise mind, which is part of emotional. And a lot of guys, when they get out of the military and, and get PTSD and that, it's all emotion, good and bad. That's where you get your anger and then you cry and because we've never really tapped into it. When you understand that and you journal, what you're actually doing is helping to understand that process, that the brain's re- rewiring itself because mm. you've got the conscious brain and the subconscious and when we sleep, we transport stuff from the conscious to the subconscious. And when you ruminate on that, you're having trouble doing that process, which is why journaling or getting it out helps with that, that shift. But I can send you, when I, I learned a lot of this in hospital and then have done courses since and help people with this because um, I think it's one of the, the lost things that. Um, no, mate, I think this is rumination. Um, I've got a lot of close mates that would like, that have gone through some serious trauma from, from Afghan, like serious fucking trauma, and they ruminate yeah. on air. Like they cannot. You have a conversation with them, yeah. and they loop and they loop, and you're like, bro, you've you've and like you sit on the phone for them for an hour, yeah. and you're like, bro, you time with this man, and they're looping, bro. They yeah. just won't. They won't the, let it go. It goes back to we're talking about intelligence, but it goes back to the so what? Why is it looping? What is it? And that's what. So two of the courses that I did was cognitive behavioural therapy and delectable behavioural therapy, which helps you unpack and pull that apart. Now, I did it for me when I was in hospital to understand me, and, you know, that's a bit, whether it be intelligence or whatever. My theory is it's not that I don't know something as I haven't learned it. And it's like why, you know, when I started training, I did a PT course, so I knew what I was doing rather than having to get someone else to teach me. And so I got right into psychology and, and understanding this and... Um, 
unpacking and understanding what you're ruminating about and is it um, accepting, you know, you might have been that shoot or uh, you might have thought you should have done something that caused an issue or unpacking what that is and to be able to move forward, if that makes sense. Uh, if this is absolutely, yeah, absolutely, mate. No, no, this is where we, this is where yeah. we sort of live in the in that space of, of, well, of yeah, personal so, growth and, and experience, mate. That absolutely. was the other part, you know, when we first started talking about coming on. Is it's a big where I live now because, like I said, I ended up in hospital, you know, and I, I you know, I lost my family and and everything. And um, you know, for me, it was sitting in the lounge watching my then five year old mimic my behaviour with my, my wife. And I was like, that's not him. You know, he's a beautiful little kid. So straight away I rang up DBA and open arms and said, look, you know, I, I need to find out what's going on and started my mental health journey. Like I said, I ended up in hospital and and it was understanding why I was feeling like that and what, it, what caused it that allowed me to get better and get on that path of growth. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have good days and bad days and, uh, you know, um, Scotty Smith was my roommate in 2012 and he, he died on my eldest son's birthday, for example. So you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, but you've got to understand why. So I know that coming into that day every year, you know, leading up to it, I'm going to be anxious or whatever, but I know, I know why, if that makes sense, which Absolutely. I don't think a lot of people that we worked with or used to work with have that foresight or understand that process. Mm. And, and I mean, it helps you. It helps you settle too when you go when you understand the why, and you're like, I know it's coming, or it's natural. I mean, the, the worst thing um, for myself and from from other people that I've spoken to is when you don't understand what's going on, you don't understand why it's happening. That just that is panic straight away because you don't know what yeah. the fuck is happening. Yeah. So so we've got when I spoke about the three minds, we've got your reasonable mind, which is somewhere where most soldiers have lived in, you know, black and white. And then on the other side, you've got your emotional mind, which is where a lot of girls or whatever, you know, they want to talk about everything. But in the middle, the ideal person's got a wise mind, and it's almost not 50-50, but it goes, I need to be make decisions today, so I need to go to my reasonable mind, or uh, it's my birthday, or there's a funeral, so I'll go to my emotional mind. But it's understanding and allowing yourself to flip between. And a lot of guys that we work with and, and that get PTSD – because we've been such in that reasonable black and white space, we don't have never really tapped into the emotional stuff because it's just who, you know, we're just blokes and fucking get over it and move on and we're all big and tough. And then all of a sudden when our walls come crashing down, the it's like the emotional mind's like a champagne bottle and the cork's off. Mm. And Because you, you don't understand and you're scrambling to, to, to get it back together. And I know personally that's where I was for a while until, like I said, I went to hospital and, and understood it. And now in my journal, I, I, I'm too much in my emotional mind and or I'm getting back stubborn again in my reasonable mind or whatever. So, anyway. Interesting. It's now become a pat. So, you know, what I threw into when I was an intelligence analyst, I've now thrown into mental health. Good. Mate, I can't believe that. Uh, this has been... We could have kicked around. This is gonna this is gonna edge over to two hours, mate. Are you happy to come back on? Um, uh, and we can we can de- delve into some of these um, philosophies of and, 
the stuff the you stuff did after the military, I think we didn't even get to touch on. Like, I can't now. I've got to wrap up, but I'd love to unpack that for an hour. Yeah, 100%. Mate, it's better fucking ripper. Um, I hope people get a lot out of this, and, I, and I'm sure they fucking will, because uh, this has been a journey through everything, and um, yeah, it's been great having you on, mate. For everybody else that's listening, we haven't even talking, mate. No, part one. <laughs> Let's do part one. Let's do a part two. All right, guys. Well, hey, look. Um, just remember, go and subscribe to the Instruction Soul separately on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you find us on Facebook for all of our podcast clips and all of our clickbait. Um, and uh, just remember, the ISS News is there while you're on Facebook. And also, send us a recommendation if you ever think of any guests that you've got. Guys, this was uh, an episode that uh, ISS Podcast is proudly supporting Swiss 8, the veteran-led mental health charity. Please check out their free app in the app stores now. Uh, from everyone else, thanks very much, and uh, we'll chat to you later, Shane.